Investing Compass is brought to you by Morningstar Australia. We'll run through the fundamentals of investing, take a deep dive of concepts and offer practical explanations, tools and resources that will allow you to invest confidently. The information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to episode four of Investing Compass. My name is Shani Jaramana. I'm an investment specialist for Morningstar, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark LaMonica, who runs the Individual Investor Business in Australia. Today's topic is one that I really enjoy, and that's because we're covering a couple of investment products that have contributed to investing being made more accessible for everyday people. It's made investing more accessible to people with lower balances or not much interest or competency with stock picking. And I think it's worth mentioning that one of these products provides a backbone to our superannuation system, which funds in whole or part our retirement. So, Mark, do you want to reveal what our investment products are? Yeah, absolutely. I actually was hoping that I wouldn't have to say anything today since you were so into funds, but I guess I still have to contribute. So, yeah, we're going to talk about managed funds and ETFs. So they are both pooled investment vehicles. And what that basically means is it combines money from lots of different investors and then goes out and purchases a basket of assets. So although they are pooled investment vehicles, they do have some different features and both of them are suitable for different people, but you do get many of the same benefits from them. Yeah. So let's start with managed funds. A managed fund is an unlisted asset, meaning that it's not traded on the stock exchange. It combines your funds with other investors and can invest in stocks, bonds, property, cash, all types of assets, even assets that you and I can't access, but professional managers can. When those investments gain or lose value, you gain or lose as well. When the assets in the fund pay income, such as dividends, you get a share of them and they're called distributions. All managed funds offered in Australia have something called a PDS, which is a product disclosure statement. You can think of this as a product Bible that outlines what it can and can't invest in, the product features, and the minimums and fees that you'd pay. In Australia, the managed funds industry is worth almost $3.7 trillion, according to the ABS, and a key boost for the industry has come in the form of compulsory superannuation. So 90% of managed funds in Australia are held within superannuational pension accounts, and unless your superannuation is self-managed, it's likely that your account is held in a managed fund. Okay, great. So we're going to try to demystify funds and ETFs today because some people balk at allowing a stranger to invest on their behalf. And one of the questions that I've always received, and I'm sure you have as well, since you spend more time talking about funds than I do, because I have other interests, more interesting interests, um, but many people are scared that there is going to be fraud and they are somehow going to lose their money. And what a lot of people point out is obviously the Bernie Madoff scandal, so which happened in 2008. And what that basically involved is $64.8 billion, um, which was the largest fraud in history. And as a side note, the owners of my favorite baseball team, the New York Mets, invested a lot of their money with Madoff. They lost all their money, and then they weren't able to sign new players. So it impacted me personally, even though I did not lose any money in this. But let's talk a little bit about Madoff. And what Madoff really did is he came out and he said that he was going to have an investment vehicle that delivered steady, consistent returns. And for thousands of investors over a period of almost 20 years, that happened. The problem was he wasn't investing the money. So he took all the client funds, he put them into a bank account, and then he was basically funding withdrawals with other investors' money, which is a Ponzi scheme. So when the GFC hit in 2008, 
the Ponzi scheme came out because basically he couldn't keep this fraud up anymore. Um, so part of the reason he got away with it is because he had an unregulated investment vehicle. So to be clear, this is very, very different than a managed fund. So with a managed fund, there are a lot of legal protections. There's a lot of different regulatory bodies, and there's a lot of safeguards to help you ensure that your funds are protected from anybody misappropriating them. So what actually happens when you invest with a professional manager? And this stuff is a little boring to most people, probably not you, Shani, um, but it's important to go through. So basically, the investment manager never gets your funds. So those funds go to something called a custodian. So basically, a custodial bank. Um, that custodial bank is responsible for keeping those funds. And they're the ones that will interact with the investment manager to make sure that your funds are safe. I feel like it's been 12 years and you're still a little bit upset about your baseball team, mate. I am a little bit upset about my baseball team, although they just recently sold themselves to Stephen Cohen, who is a hedge fund manager who has a lot of money. It's so, all come full circle. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I'm hoping, as long as he's not committing a massive fraud, which will probably sue me for saying that, I'm hoping that the team will get better. But anyway, why don't we go back to uh, ETFs? So tell me about ETFs, Shani. So we have ETFs, which stand for exchange-traded funds. ETFs are similar to managed funds in that they contain many assets like stocks, bonds, property, and cash. But the main difference is that ETFs are traded on exchanges. Um, so this means you're able to trade in and out of them as long as the market's open. So you can think of it this way. Anything you might do with a stock, you can do the same thing with an ETF. Yeah. So ETFs have become really, really popular. Um, and, you know, one of the major selling points that they've always come out with is, as you were describing, this ease of access. So let's start with that. How do you actually invest in these assets? Yeah. So managed funds often have a poor reputation for ease of access, um, meaning it takes a little bit of paperwork to be on your way. So if you wanted to invest in a managed fund, the most common way to do this is going directly to a fund manager and filling out pages of forms, which can vary from five to 10 pages, uh, getting your ID certified and a few other tasks that usually um, make investors say, this is all a little too hard. So ETFs, on the other hand, if you have a brokerage account, you can access ETFs. You can trade them just like you can a stock. So I can see why ETFs always seem like the easier option. Yeah. So, right. So both managed funds and ETFs are just investment products that are filled with underlying assets. And those assets can be anything, right? They can be equities, they can be bonds, they can be cash. So when you invest in a managed fund or ETF, you're basically just outsourcing the selection of those securities. But that doesn't mean it's a wise idea to invest in asset classes you don't understand. And that's really why when we kicked this thing off, the first thing we covered was stocks. And I think one of the, the good examples or one of the things that you talked about, once again, plugging managed funds, was that you don't have to necessarily invest in individual stocks. You can let somebody else do it, but you need to understand what is actually in there. Um, because if you don't understand what that underlying asset is, um, it can really contribute to poor investor behavior because you won't understand why prices are fluctuating. So if the performance doesn't make sense to you, you're going to switch to a different fund or ETF, which is bad investor behavior. Mm -hmm. So um, our first episode was on stocks. You can give that a listen to get an overview and there's some further reading suggestions at the end if you want to learn more as well. All right. So apart from being listed on a stock exchange, there are a few differences to those products. Um, and that could mean that one of them could suit your situation more than the other. So we'll dive into this. But first, let's talk a little bit about diversification. One of the main reasons you would invest in a managed fund or an ETF is you get instant diversification. 
diversification. It's a pretty straightforward concept, but a lot of people misapply it and misunderstand it. So in simple terms, it's the process of allocating your funds in a way that reduces your exposure to any particular asset or risk. So a common way of doing this is people reduce volatility by investing in a variety of assets. So in other words, a portfolio contains some asset classes that are supposed to go up when other asset classes go down. That way, there's less short-term volatility in your overall account value. Yeah, and an example that we've used before is comparing the prohibitive prices of some stocks to the entry prices of some of these funds and ETFs. We've used the example of Amazon before, how it's just worth a little bit before below um, $5,000 Aussie, which is the minimum investment for the Vanguard International Shares Index, um, which invests in Amazon as well as 1,700 other stocks. Um, with smaller balances, it's sometimes really hard not to put all your eggs in one basket. I know in an episode prior to this, we sort of promised we'd speak about someone other than Buffett, um, but it's so hard not to. So, what if you wanted to invest in Berkshire Hathaway, which is currently valued at around half a million Aussie dollars for one stock? You could sell your house um, and in most cases scrape together enough for one share in the company. Or you could invest in um, the Vanguard Financials ETF for $86 a unit and that has about 9% exposure to Berkshire Hathaway. If we look at this from a different perspective, it's understanding that managed funds and ETFs, as well as the diversification they provide, um, might be more suitable for smaller balances and investing in direct equities. So what to take from this is that funds and ETFs can give you access to diversified investments where price or the amount you have to invest is a prohibitive factor. Well, Shani, don't you assume that after our last myth-busting episode where we talked about real estate that most people have now sold their house? (laughs) So maybe they do have funds to go buy a a single share of Berkshire Hathaway? Maybe a couple, Yeah, depending on where you live. Exactly, exactly. But anyway, one of the important concepts that's connected to this um, with managed funds is they're really good for people that are investing small balances. And really, you know, we want to make this stuff practical in real world. And a lot of people invest paycheck to paycheck. So if you invest in a listed, listed asset, whether that's an individual share or an ETF, you have to pay brokerage every single time. So this ease of trading um, has a cost and that cost is brokerage. So you pay brokerage on the way in, you pay brokerage on the way out. And so these transaction costs can really eat into your returns over the long term. So if you're investing paycheck to paycheck um, and it is small amounts, the majority, if not all managed funds, don't charge any costs for additional investments. So it really can be detrimental to your return to pay all this brokerage on small balances. So if I'm investing $200 from every paycheck into Telstra, for example, I could be paying up to $15 brokerage to make that purchase each time. So you're starting out right with a 7.5% loss. And so you have to make that up um, before the market has even moved at all, right? So the price can have a really big impact on your balance. So depending upon your investment strategy and the amounts that you're investing, managed funds could be an option for you and make it worthwhile to spend some time filling out that paperwork that you were talking about, Shani. Yeah, and um, I know you sort of ran over this, but I think it's really important to stress. Most people think about brokerage as only on the way in, um, but you, of course, incur it on the way out as well when you sell. So it's important that you consider this, not just in your strategies for making additional investments into the market, but also for retirement drawdowns. If you're drawing down every fortnight or every month in your retirement, you might want to consider a product where you're not penalized for doing so like you are with listed products like ETFs and equities. 
Yeah, and I think another advantage, particularly for people that are sort of starting out or maybe don't have that much interest in dedicating hours and hours to investing, is that funds and ETFs are pretty convenient. They require little up, uh, little maintenance. So once you've invested into them, um, you know they're professionally managed. You have a fund manager who's looking out for your portfolio, who buys and sells assets within that managed fund or ETF, basically within line of that strategy that you've agreed to once you've invested in uh, in that product. Yeah, and I really like it for this reason, um, because unlike direct equities, I don't monitor it to see if assets are over or undervalued, whether allocations need to be readjusted or at tax time, have complex reporting, it's all consolidated for me. Um, but there is a reason why this might not be convenient for everyone. Yeah, so there is, there is a downside. Um, you are obviously not spending all this time worried about uh, individual investments, but you're obviously giving up um, control at that point. And so all these decisions are being made on your behalf. And in something that I still think is rather shocking about Australia is that it's industry standard to only disclose the top five or maybe the top 10 holdings in most managed funds. And to be perfectly clear, this is an Australia-only thing. Every other developed country in the world has full disclosure. Um, in my personal opinion, there's no reason Reason that you should not also have that in Australia. But just remember, investing here, there is a lack of visibility. Um, and that's a disadvantage, obviously, if you uh, if we compare that to investing in direct equities, where you know everything in your portfolio. Um, you can see everything in your portfolio. You can execute trades when you, when you want. Um, so if you don't derive, but at the same time, if you don't derive a lot of enjoyment from trading individual securities, this is another option. Yeah. And I think it's something to remember as well that it's not an either or choice. You're able to invest in both direct equities and funds and ETFs and whatever else you'd like to be invested in. Um, they can also have different purposes towards the same goals in your portfolios. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Let's say everything that we've said so far sounds good. Um, which hopefully it does. Um, and you want to invest in a fund or ETF. So we got to, we got to go through what the next steps are. So first thing you need to do is you need to decide if you want to invest actively or passively. So maybe a good way to, a good place to start is to explain what those are. So Shani. That's a pretty good place to start. So an active strategy is where you outsource your funds to a professional manager um, who'll invest the funds based on a particular strategy and investment style looking to beat a benchmark that they set for the fund. And a passive strategy is when a fund, um, which can be exchange traded or unlisted, tracks an index or portfolio. And in other words, there's no stock picking um, occurring in the fund. Um, however, again, just like the assets in your portfolio, it's worth noting that you do not need to exclusively use one or the other. You can be a proponent of both, active and employ passive when constructing your portfolio. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. And I think so much when we look at the investing um, industry in general, people seem to feel like they need to fall into one of these camps. And there is a little bit of a rivalry between this active and passive camp. But why don't we talk about everyone's investing for their own goals and for their own reasons. So let's talk about why this may fit in your individual portfolio. So there's a few things you should consider. And one of the first things to consider is how efficient is the underlying market. So once again, that's a little bit jargony, jargony. So we will, uh, we'll talk about that. So what does efficiency mean? So it basically relates to how much the prices in that market reflect the underlying valuation. So to take a step back. Um, we have talked about companies. You're buying companies. In the case of a share, you're buying companies. 
that company has a value. That company also has a price that's trading for on the exchange, and they can be different. So when we're talking about efficiency, we're talking about how close those two things are together. So the problem is that nobody knows how efficient a market is. So what this really boils down to is, does an active manager outperform their designated index? So the ability to outperform that index means that there are probably cases where there are discrepancies between what something is valued and what the actual price is. So if we look at these different markets that you're investing in, it's a lot harder to outperform when there's a lot of competition and widespread investor interest. So large cap stocks. So large cap stocks are the biggest stocks, so the biggest companies um, in the world. Think about that. And we talked to one of our manager research analysts, um, a guy by the name of Andrew Miles, and he shared a quote, and I'm going to read his quote now. Um, so he said, if you're investing in active funds, they're looking mostly at large cap stocks like the ASX. 200, you're going to find it difficult to achieve a return that outperforms the benchmark. These companies are heavily researched by institutions, fund managers, and brokers, and they're all very well understood. So lower down in the market, where there aren't eyes on the companies and traditional brokers, do not cover them. There are opportunities for these companies to be misunderstood. That is where managers and individuals find attractive buys. So that was a long quote. <laughs> um, it is a long quote. Yeah, but generally, um, the less efficient markets are the markets that investors aren't interested in, and there are structural issues that prevent investors from accessing them. So small caps is a really good example. Um, and maybe you can explain what a small cap is too, Mark. Yeah, so much like we explain large cap, a small cap is just a smaller company. And just to be clear, cap stands for capitalization. Um, so we're trying not to say any jargon here, right? And so what that basically means is the way you tell how big a company is, it isn't how many people work there or how many buildings they have or their sales or anything else. You're looking at what that company is worth. So all we're taking is the number of shares outstanding times the price and that tells you how big the company are. So big companies are companies that are worth more. Small companies are companies that are worth less. Now, generally, obviously, those correspond to what their earnings are and how much revenue they have and et cetera. But that's really the definition. Yeah. So um, small caps are a good example of an industry that doesn't have as much interest as stocks with large market capitalizations. Um, in the same breath, emerging markets are similar in that it's likely for companies within these asset classes to be misunderstood. In countries such as China, there is a larger mix of retail investors that are momentum driven. Um, so that's investors who seek to profit on market trends. Um, and this gives investors opportunities, but also presents risks as well. Yeah. So what we're saying here, right, is every single market. And once again, if you want to diversify, you're trying to access all these different asset classes and markets. They're all very different. And, you know, one of the things we do here at Morningstar is every six months, every six months, we publish a report called the Active Passive Barometer. So this is mostly U.S. focused, but it does have a lot of revealing insights that I think are pertinent to investors everywhere. So in the last report that came out, the results reveal that in general, actively managed funds have failed to beat their benchmarks, especially over longer time horizons. So only 24% of all active funds topped the average of their passive rivals over a 10-year period ending June 2020. So 
what we do need to do is not look overall, but we need to look at where those active funds are more successful because that can give us an insight into how efficient that market is. So in international funds, now once again, we're talking US, so global funds here, non-US global funds, real estate funds, and bond funds. So the lowest success rate was large caps. Those are the biggest US companies and US funds that invest in them. So once again, that is a part of the market that's extremely well-researched and really watched by a lot of different investment professionals. Yeah. And what this really means for you is that you're lo- if you're looking for exposure to large cap stocks in well-researched markets like the Aussie market or the US market, you're probably better off going for a passive fund because although it's not impossible, it's really hard um, for active managers to find opportunities in this market and opportunities that can justify or make up for their higher fees in performance um, are few and far between. So if you're looking at asset classes or opportunities that are not as well covered or don't have as much interest, understanding whether an active manager can add value there could help you find the right fit for your portfolio. Okay. So you talked about you talked about fees, right? So let's talk about this fee hurdle. So fees are a large reason why many investors choose passive funds over active. Um, the higher the fee, the harder it is for the manager to beat the benchmark. So if you know, if we go back and look at what a benchmark is, so a benchmark is a basket of stocks um, or bonds or any other asset class that you're investing in. And by definition, what that benchmark is, what that index is, is the average performance from an investor. So what that means is that if everyone invests in the benchmark and there are fees, you are doing worse than average. So as an active manager, you have to overcome this fee hurdle to try to make sure that your investors perform better than uh better than average. So um, let's talk a little bit about fees. So fees have come down a lot, um, which I think is an important consideration. Um, But still, it's not uncommon from an active manager to charge between um, like 0.8 of a percent to 1.5% as a manage as a management fee. And many, as Shawnee pointed out in our Morningstar research has pointed out, historically have failed to beat their benchmarks. Yeah. And that same report that you mentioned before, Mark, the um, active passive barometer reveals that price doesn't always mean value as well. So the cheapest active funds succeeded about twice as often as the priciest ones. So there was a 34% success rate versus a 16% success rate over the 10-year period ending June 30, 2020. And so this doesn't just reflect cost advantages and how it translates to performance, but also differences in survival as six 65% of the cheapest funds survived, um, whereas 49% of the most expensive did so. So survival seems quite cryptic. What do you mean by by survival, Yeah, I like pull you out into the jungle with one of those tiki torches and just put it out. That's survivor. (laughs) You're saying survival. Yeah, so survival um, um, is if they still exist after 10 years. So over half of the funds closed down in that 10-year period. Um, And although fees shouldn't be the deciding factor, it's very difficult for active managers to find opportunities in markets that are diligently watched, as we discussed before. Um, Passive funds historically just have been a better bet for investors. Um, And the last consideration we'll discuss, which impacts whether you should go for an active or passive strategy, is how liquid the underlying assets are. All right. So more jargon, Shani, liquid. Um, All right. So one of the things that's important to consider is where passive investing works best. So where it really works best is if the underlying holdings, so whatever the holdings are in this 
fund are regularly traded at a high volume. Um, so really, as an index manager, what you're looking for is having low tracking error. So explain tracking error. Yeah, so I feel like this is a quiz. Um, tracking error is um, the measure of how closely the investment is following the index um, to which it might be benchmarked. Okay, well, that, that you passed that quiz. Okay, great. I don't know how people grade things in Australia because I say to people, like, getting an A, I never got any. But that's, like, really <laughs> good in the U.S. But I don't know, like, high distinction or something. So you got a high distinction on that question? Is that a thing? That's a thing. That's a thing. All right. There we go. Um, so, yeah, as you were saying, in less liquid markets, it is harder for a passive manager to basically follow the index because those buy-sell spreads are wider. The price of the asset can move quickly away from the manager before they can build up the position that they need to. So if you're looking at a position in asset classes that are not as liquid, it may be worth considering going to a professional manager um, just because they have more trading flexibility. They are not just blindly following this index. And remember, there's lots of passive managers following this index. So as soon as something gets included and something gets kicked out of the index, um, there's a bunch of people trying to build a position. Yeah. So Mark, why don't we give an overview of where these products might actually add value? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if we're talking about a situation where you have a larger balance and you believe you have a competitive advantage picking individual security. So we talked about this in the last one, edge, where you believe you have an edge, direct equities may suit you. And I'd also like to add if you're interested in it. Um, that's really important as well. Um, if you've got a larger balance and you don't think that you have an advantage of picking stocks, um, perhaps ETFs or managed funds are better suited for you. And I think a really important thing to remember, the ETFs have done such a great job marketing themselves that everyone thinks they should invest in an ETF. But as we talked about before, um, if you have continual sort of low balance um, contributions going into your investments and you don't want to incur brokerage all the time, a managed fund probably makes a lot more sense. So trading flexibility. This is the thing that you always hear from ETFs, right? Because yeah. they put that in all their commercials and everyone thinks they're great because you can trade them. So let's hear it. Okay. Tell me about trading flexibility. Shari. Yeah, trading flexibility is definitely lower in managed funds. Um, they aren't listed on a stock, at mar stock market. So it means that um, they aren't priced throughout the day like equities and ETFs are. So if you're after intraday flexibility, managed funds um, are probably not right for you. But at the same time, if you're a long-term investor, it really shouldn't matter whether you have access to your investments priced during the day. Yeah. Yeah. And we hear, we hear this all the time, right? So people are like, oh, I really like the flexibility of investing for an ETF. And you're like, oh, what's your time horizon? 20 years. And you're like, you can't wait four hours for this price. Do you think that that matters 20 years from now? But yeah, it's always, uh, it's always interesting. So the other point that we're making is minimum investments. So minimum investments for funds are usually higher. So I know this might be a little different than what we were saying or what you might be thinking. Um, it's higher than what you can do in an ETF because literally you could just buy one share of an ETF, right? But as we talked about, because of transaction costs, you don't want to do this. There's no way that you are going to be a successful investor going out and buying one share of an ETF. Um, as we talked about before, it's just too big of a brokerage hurdle for you to get over. So with funds, um, there are certainly funds that you can invest in with as little as $500. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about, uh, and we're talking about obviously going out and investing through the managed fund, um, 
manager directly. Um, a retail investor, you can have a minimum ten to twenty five thousand um, dollars. But the industry's really evolved to cater for the needs of investors. So these minimums have dropped, and a lot of fund managers now offer the ability to invest with a savings plan, where you basically commit to investing a certain amount per month, and they waive or lower the initial investment amount. So it's really, really important that if you're going down the path of investing in ETF, that the investment amount makes sense for the brokerage paid. So like the example we gave before, you don't want to make a $200 investment and pay $15 brokerage every time. And I think one sort of interesting example for this is what's your other? So if you're trying to save $200 a month, mm-hmm. um, so one thing you can do is just wait, right? So you can build up that $200 and you'll say maybe every six months I'll invest, but then why are you looking at a flexible trading vehicle if you're waiting six months to invest and you won't wait a day until a price comes out for a managed fund? So I actually, when I started investing, I started with a savings plan. But I, I mean, I was talking about investing in ETFs. <laughs> no, but you were talking about savings plans before that. I was talking about savings plans. So <laughs> yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I um, I started in a graduate job and that's when I started investing. So I really didn't have that much to invest when I first started. So I made a commitment to invest um, $500 every month into a managed fund, which I still continue to do till today. So yeah, they were. Like till today, like you're stopping today? No. Or- through today. Okay, through, yeah. okay. All right. Just making sure. I didn't know if this is a point. Are you making fun of my English? I'm not making fun of your English. <laughs> okay. Um, that's probably the time that we should probably move on to behavioral risks. So um, successful investing means blocking irrelevant information and having the strength to stick to a plan and resist the urge to follow the herd. Some investments promote this, while others encourage overtrading. So this is really about knowing yourself and what risk you can stomach and your behavior as an investor. Managed funds have a high barrier to trade, um, like we spoke about before, and this is called a speed bump, which can encourage you to think twice before making a transaction. And this speed bump is there because they price once a day, which means you don't need to see intraday volatility like you do with listed assets. And most managed funds also require paperwork to redeem assets, um, which acts as a kind of physical speed bump when um, where you might really think twice about making a transaction because of the time and effort it takes to make it. All right. So now that you've accused me of making fun of your English, and I'll have you know, actually, we had an earlier webinar that our compliance team listened to. Yeah. And the um, the head of compliance here actually called Shawnee and asked her why she was making fun of me so much <laughs> during the webinar. So just That's remember that. not exactly that. how it went. Not exactly, but it's close. Um, all right. This one's going straight to compliance too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So we've had a chat about what circumstances may suit the different products. And maybe we've convinced you and you're ready to take the plunge with a managed fund or ETF. So the other problem is there are thousands of them. So how do you pick one and then actually invest in them? Yeah, so picking the right one is ultimately finding one that sits your portfolio, um, which is built to help reach your goals. So this is a completely different conversation on its own and we'll line up a future episode for it. But when you're picking an investment, the main consideration would be firstly, understand your goals. What are you looking to achieve and what kind of time frame are you looking at? Yeah. So the goal thing is really, really important. We've got this saying at Morningstar, we are about the investor and not the investment. And that's why we want to start with goals. So actually, as part of Morningstar Premium, we do have a goal calculator um, that allows you to go in there and uh, set a goal and look at your required rate of return, et cetera. But there are also plenty of other ones online um, if you just search for required rate of return calculators. So 
Getting that figure will give you an understanding of what that asset allocation mix is that you need to achieve your goal. So if you need to achieve, let's say, 5% over 10 years to hit your goal, um, you're probably going to want to invest in something more than cash, for example, because you just aren't going to make your goal that way. Yeah. And so we've got guidance on our website about asset allocation targets for different goals. And we've got a couple of investing guides that walk you through the process start to finish as well. Um, but once you have that re- required rate of return and you know your asset allocation, it means you can start searching for vehicles that match that. Um, so if I need to include an Aussie equities portion of my portfolio, I can find an Aussie equity fund to fill it. And you can weigh up considerations like price, minimum investment, performance to a certain degree. Um, but we'll take a deep dive in this of this like in a future episode, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, because there's a, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but all right, how do you actually invest in a fund or an ETF? So how about this? I'll start with ETFs and you can talk about funds because you love funds. Um, so all right, starting with ETFs. Once again, we said at the beginning, people like them because they are easy to access. It is one of the best things about them. They're traded just like stocks. So at the end of the day, what you need to do is you need to open a brokerage account. Major banks all have brokers attached to them. There are a lot of online brokers that have more competitive fees. Once again, you're looking at that transaction fee. Try to make judgments over who you want to use. And once you have that account open, you can just buy units of those ETFs. They range in price, of course. Um, and because they're professionally managed, the underlying holdings um, will be bought or sold depending upon the investment strategy you've invested in. Should I go on about managed funds now? I, wait, it is your favorite thing. Except for Excel. <laughs> Johnny also really likes Excel. We're really painting a wonderful Excel. picture of you here. Yeah. Someone need to manage funds and Excel. I use Excel recreationally. Okay. So. Well, I don't want to know about what you use recreationally, <laughs> okay. but we'll just move on from there. All right. So for managed funds, there are a few ways to invest. Um, and the most common way is investing directly with the fund manager. So most have retail offerings. So that means um, offerings for you and me for their funds. Um, and we can invest in them as individual investors. But they traditionally need between five thousand dollars and a hundred thousand dollars initial investment into the fund. Um, there are, of course, exceptions and outliers to this, but the minimums are usually dictated by the assets held within the fund. So traditionally, the higher barriers of entry, so the more expensive um, minimum investments are for more liquid assets or for funds where cash flow is a primary concern for investing. But generally, you'll be sitting between 5 to 25K going directly to a fund manager for, a, for an equities fund. All right. And there's also something called M-Fund in Australia. And what that basically means is you can purchase or select um, you can purchase and select managed funds through your broker. So the same way that you would purchase an ETF. So the minimums tend to be a little lower, so you can access funds um, for a lot less than what Shani was talking about, but it's very dependent upon the fund manager. So um, you know that's really the way they do it in the US. Um, so it's kind of what I was used to. I was a little taken aback by all this paperwork in, uh, in Australia. Um, and you know, doing it through this avenue means that um, you do uh, you do miss out on one of the main benefits of managed funds because this is traded on exchange. There are transaction costs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm actually really glad that I listened to you say that, Mark, because we do these webinars and we've talked about funds and ETFs before, and I'm just glad you're listening to me. I always <laughs> listen to you. I always listen to you. Um, that was really good. Okay. So lastly, we have platforms. So platforms are investment products which give access to many managed funds in the one product. And there are a few reasons why an investor might pick a platform. 
Traditionally, platforms have lower minimum investments for funds than going directly to the fund manager. And then because of scale, so there are a lot of investors investing in this platform and they're able to offer much lower minimum additional investment amounts, which can help for those investing paycheck to paycheck. And of course, there's always a trade-off for the benefits you get from platforms. They're generally more expensive because of the increased administration. Um, but again, great strides have been made in this space to make it a bit more friendly for us. Um, and because platforms are wholesale clients of large fund managers, it means that they usually get a pretty significant fee cut and that they can then pass on to you if they choose to. But it's moving to become more friendly, as I said, for retail investors. So um, these fees do keep coming down over the years. And the history of platforms in Australia is that they were advisor focused and the consolidating Consolidated reporting and administration made it easier for them to manage clients. Um, and this focus has shifted over the years for some providers as the number of individuals who are self-advised increase in Australia. So they're able to cater to them a little bit more. So there are a lot of um, individuals now that just don't have a financial advisor, but they're still looking to access these products. Um, and we're seeing these trends continue. So hopefully as we move forward, platforms become more accessible for us as individual investors and move away from being, um, sometimes unnecessarily complex or suited purely for professional investors or investors with financial advisors. All right. So we've run through funds and ETFs today. Why don't we take a step back and hopefully go through what people have learned? Um, so listen, a couple of different takeaways. The first takeaway is that you do not need to invest in direct equities to get exposure to the share market. So direct equities are certainly not for every circumstance or for every person. Same thing with bonds, same thing with any other asset class, right, that's traded. The second, uh, the second thing to remember is that funds and ETFs are investment products with different features. So these features like the minimum investment amount, um, how to invest, uh, you know, once again, whether you're incurring brokerage or not can suit different circumstances. And that's all based on you and what your goal is and how you're investing. And then finally, the third thing that we hopefully learned um, is that different investment products have different investment strategies. So they can be active or passive. Um, you do not need to uh, religiously prescribe to one of these two choices. You can use both and they can play different roles in your portfolio as you're trying to get exposure to different asset classes in order to achieve your goals. Yeah, and I might go through some of the resources that you can lean on. So um, we've got a fund investing guide that I wrote. I think it was the first guide that I ever wrote at Morningstar. Oh. It was, it was. And so interestingly enough, I had Shani write that guide or I asked Shani to write that guide when she worked on another team. So this was like my <laughs> subtle was. way of starting to poach her and get her onto our team, which was one of the best things that's ever happened. Well, so that's very kind, Mark. It it's is. also quite sad because I did it in my spare time. So <laughs> Yeah, but you love fun. So what else? <laughs> Did that cut into your recreational Excel use? Yeah, I think uh -huh. so. Um, so I wrote the guide and it um, runs through what a managed fund is. And if you decided that you want to invest in one, it takes a deep dive into the considerations for finding the right one for your circumstances. And then, and then there's the ETF investing guide. And that one's written by Mark. Um, any comments about that one, mate? I, I, I also did in my spare time. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so this serves the same purpose as a fund investing guide, but obviously for ETFs. And then we've just got um, one if you really want to know a little bit more about passive funds or ETFs, and that's called The Little Book of Common Sense Investing by John Bogle, who is the founder of Vanguard. And um, he's written a great book, which sums up the case quite well for passive investing. Um, but both of the guides can be found in our Learn to Invest section of our Morningstar Premium website. 
Um, but I think that's all we have today for funds and ETFs. So we'd really appreciate any feedback or comments. Um, you can find an email in the episode notes as well. Um, and if you'd like to show your support, please subscribe or follow our podcast on your chosen platform and share with your friends and family who may be looking to learn a little bit more. Any advice is general advice prepared by Morningstar without reference to your financial objectives, situation or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest.